0: our good and and gracious God. Um, Father, we ask your help during this time as we consider your words, as we consider who Jesus is, the promised one, as we consider the fact that you have come and saved us. Um, Father, strengthen me for this task. Help us to see Christ um, as he is, our Savior, um, and all that we need to have peace with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So by way of introduction, um, I just want to review what we kind of studied last week, because a lot of us, a lot of you weren't here last week. Um, and it doesn't necessarily go uh, just go into this week, but it, w- it would be good for us to remember, um, because we are kind of just uh, helicoptering and dropping into the middle of, of Luke, if you will, and then in the middle of chapter seven. And so last week we considered who is Jesus. We know that Luke is writing about the promised one. And so in a lot of his recordings, right, as he's uh, put together and, and piled up uh, the eyewitness accounts and to put this together so that we would believe the things um, that we've heard. And that well that's the, what he says about writing uh, as he's put together this account of the life and the work of Jesus. And we considered who Jesus is and what we learn about who Jesus is from chapter seven. And we talked about kind of how we're so infatuated with growing in the Christian life and seeing our growth and measuring it and being excited about it. But that true, go- true growth can't be measured the way we would like it to. Uh, most of the time we think we've improved and, and we're, we've overcome sin and it's really just the lack of temptation. The emphasis of the scriptures on running from sin is a lot about our identity our new life in Christ, that we're no longer those things. So don't pursue them and run from them. And it's a lot about loving our neighbors who need our good works and our mercy and our love and our compassion. And it's more about one day at a time as we wait for Jesus's return. And so growth in the Christian life is mainly the work of God's spirit through believing and understanding who Jesus is. And so we considered the fact that if the Bible really is about God's plan of redemption accomplished by Jesus, then the way to understand it, to apply it, and to be filled with the fullness of God is by believing and understanding who Jesus is. And so we jump into Luke chapter 7, and we're in verse 18. And um, excuse me. And so what we considered in the sermon last week was that Jesus is the great prophet, right? He doesn't ask God for authority. He doesn't ask for what to say. He doesn't ask God to do things. He says them and they happen. He does them because He is God, right? So uh, the the authority of God's Word kind of showed us that He's the great prophet in word and in deed. We talked about how He's the substitute for sinners, um, how all of the Old Testament prophets pointed to Him as the promised one, But what did that promised one show up as? A substitute for sinners like you and I. We talked about how he is freedom for captives, freedom from the condemnation of the law and the tyranny of sin, freedom unto righteousness and freedom from the grave, which leads to the final point we considered last week was how he is hope to those who weep um, because we have a, a glory waiting for us where we will behold be like him, imperishable to be with our Savior forever. And so we pick up in verse 18. And the purpose this morning is to see how when the promised one came, the one who fulfilled, my God will come and save you. When he came, it was not the way that people thought he would. And he didn't come do the things that people thought he would do the way they thought that he would do them. And so the plan today is consider this uh, 18 through 35. Uh, in two parts and then I want to identify and deal with the two dominant issues that are brought up from from these passages of scripture. And so before moving on to part 1 let's read our text together. In verse 18 of chapter 7 The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John calling two of his disciples to him, sent the Lord saying, sent sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have heard, what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And when John's messengers had gone to Jesus, had gone from Jesus, sorry. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothing? In soft clothing? And when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge. And you did not weep, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. We praise God for his word. And so part one, verses 18 through 23 is simply John's doubt and Jesus' response. John's doubt and Jesus' response. See, John has doubts and questions if Jesus is the one who is to come. Because as we consider John the Baptist, he was bringing a close to the Old Testament in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as the forerunner of the kingdom of God. He was the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah, he was the voice calling out in the wilderness, proclaiming the coming judgment of God that would provoke people to see their sin, to see their need to repent from their godlessness and their need for cleansing. John the Baptist has come for proclaiming the Messiah who, who comes to set things right, undo the wrong in the world, to fix things, to bring justice, to save his people. But the dilemma is, in the eyes of John, The message that Jesus is bringing, along with his actions, doesn't seem to contain much of the judgment of God against unrighteousness. And it it definitely doesn't seem to be uh, bringing vengeance to, to, uh, to to unrighteousness or saving the people of God. So it's like, what is happening here? And John the Baptist is thrown in prison, right? He's in prison because he's preaching the righteousness of God. And it's made the king mad, and so he's in jail. Right? And he's proclaiming the one who is to come, the God who will come and save you. He's arrived. And yet, John's in jail for it. And he's supposed to do all these things, and that's not happening. And so, the, John is in this quandary. Like, I'm preaching the righteousness of God, and I'm in jail for it. And you're supposed to be coming as the righteousness of God to lay down vengeance and to save people. And it's like you're hanging out with corrupt politicians and sinners. And what is. And I'm in jail. Right? So, this is. My God will come and save you, as as we even read in in Isaiah 35. But I'm in jail. What is happening? So not only has Jesus not brought judgment to evildoers who love their evil, he's performing all these miracles, and John is still sitting in jail. You you can bring dead people to life and and give mute people a, a new song to sing, but I'm sitting in jail. Right? So he asks, are you really the coming one? Or should I look for another? Because what we thought about the one who was going to come, it doesn't seem like you're doing that. Right. And so let's let's be aware, though, as we consider that. The prophets often spoke better than they knew. Right. John was human and he was frail and he didn't understand the entire ministry of the Messiah. We can venture to say that we're not sure if any of the prophets fully understood how this was going to unfold. And so John's question is really about earthly deliverance, right? Because this Messiah was supposed to deliver his people and bring judgment to evil. And so he's like, are you really the one? Because I'm still sitting in jail. Where's the deliverance? But rather than establishing an earthly kingdom, the Lord Jesus was on his way to crush the enemy of God's people. He was establishing an eternal kingdom. So far greater than any earthly healing or any earthly deliverance the Lord Jesus was on his way, had arrived. The Messiah, the promised one, had arrived to accomplish an everlasting, eternal healing and set up an eternal kingdom where sin would no longer reign. And that's found in the gospel that we've considered over and over today. But before moving on to to John's to Jesus' response to, to John's doubt, just a quick maybe aside, you know, unfortunately, doubt of all kinds, it just comes with the territory of the Christian life, but also does the compassion and the grace in the finished work of the Lord Jesus on behalf of sinners. You know, God promises in Hebrews 13 that he will never leave us or forsake us. And what he's saying is, I will never cease to sustain and uphold you. I will never let you down. And that's true for John the Baptist. And later on, we find out that he dies. But this is still true. And in what way will God never cease to take care of us and never let us down? What is that ultimately fulfilled in? Let's just continue to look at Jesus's response. He doesn't respond in anger, right? Like, my gosh, he later says he's the greatest one born above above women, born by women. Right. So he's saying all that stuff. But he doesn't say like, man, John, you are a you. I just can't believe that you would question who I am. No, with, with compassion and with understanding. What does the Lord do? In that hour, he heals people. And um, many who had who were blind got sight. And then he tells John's disciples, go tell them what you've seen. And he quotes Isaiah 35 that we, that we read today. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the promised one. You know that I am. And so he's calling John, right, out of his doubt because he's not doing what Jesus isn't doing what John thought he would do when he came. He's calling him out of that doubt and to remember the faithfulness of the Lord. And he's just pointing to Isaiah and his fulfillment of that in an earthly way to say, I'm the one um, that this whole, my God will come and save you um, is it is happening. Right. And he's saying, well, you're doing all of this. So where's the deliverance and where's the vengeance and and right. So so John's in this quandary. Jesus is answering him. Look, I am the one. That's how he answers him. And. <clears throat> and so he did those things. And like I said, those six uh, specific miracles, Jesus lists the cleansing of the lepers. That's also in Isaiah 29. The blind received their sight. Isaiah 35, the lame walk. That's Isaiah 34. Five. The deaf hear, that's Isaiah 35. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And that's also in Isaiah 61. And the poor are not only the physically poor, but also the spiritual poverty, right, of the poor. And so he says, John, you know I'm the one. And he calls him out of that doubt and to, to trust him that he is the fulfillment. And again, he doesn't come with, with flair and with power, Jesus. He doesn't. And he doesn't come with judgment the way that the generation thought that the Messiah would. And instead, he comes with mercy towards evildoers. And he hung around lowly people, and he was poor and rejected himself. And so, what a way for the promised one to come, right? What a way for this one, this long-expected Messiah to come. And so, he finishes with this. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And we'll consider why that is such a big deal that Jesus would say, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And so this brings us to the next portion where Jesus kind of talks about why people would be offended and who is offended. So part two, there's a question and an answer from Jesus and a parable of rebuke. Part two is a Q&A from Jesus and a parable of rebuke. And this is verses 24 through 35. So Jesus asks a question and he gives the answer. Verses 24, you can put your eyes there. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed in the wind, right? And so just think about, just for a picture image, I mean, just think about kind of going to a a bank, like through the wilderness, and you kind of arrive maybe right before you get to a pond or something, and there's tall grass, and, and it's just kind of waving back and forth, like just beautiful scenery. Like, did you go out because you liked the beautiful scenery? Did you go out for a man dressed in fine linen, right? His, his reason for asking this is he's like, you didn't go out there because you liked the scenery, and you didn't go out there for a fashion statement. What did you go out there for? He tells him, you went out there to see a prophet. More than that, you actually saw prophecy being fulfilled, the prophecy of, of Malachi 3.1, actually. And this is essentially what Jesus is doing, is giving John's eulogy. And, and I, I kind of joke to say it's John's eulogy to be somewhat funny because the next time we hear of John the Baptist, his head is cut off. And so in verses uh, 28, the first half, Jesus says that there's no one greater than John who has been born of a woman. And so what does it mean by, Je- by John being the, the greatest among men? It, well, it means that he's the end of one era, right? and is pointing to the dawn and the realization of God's plan of redemption, right? He points to John the Baptist being the forerunner, being that role of the one who announces the kingdom of God. It is here, right? So the reason John the Baptist is greatest is because all of the other prophets pointed to the one who was to come. John the Baptist is like, he is here. He's announcing it. Like, bruh, has arrived. And so that's that's what's going on there. And, you know, And in verse 21, uh, 28b, if you put your eyes there, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. See, Jesus is making this distinction between the old age and the new era of the kingdom of God. When Jesus says born of women, he's speaking of the ordinary birth from a woman. Ordinary birth is associated with the old covenant, and spiritual birth is associated with the new covenant, a new birth, a spiritual birth, where someone is rebirthed, if you will. And so the emphasis here is that those um, people in the kingdom of God are greater than because they have God's spirit in them. They are literally brought to life. And uh, in fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, where he puts his law in our hearts and we obey him from the heart and we are his people and he is our God. So the least in the kingdom of God is greater than the Old Testament prophet, right? Than the greatest Old Testament prophet. Because this is the fulfillment of, we get to live in this age of fulfillment, if you will. And so in verse 29, if you put your eyes there, Jesus is saying that it is right that people saw John the Baptist as the one whom God was working through, right? So the, and it's kind of funny, he says, and the tax collectors, just in case you thought that corrupt politicians and government workers weren't a part of this, they he mentions that, right? That little plug. And tax collectors. So all the poor people and the needy people did it, but so did the corrupt politicians. They heard these words of John, this message of the righteousness of God and the need for repentance and cleansing. And they said, God is just. This is right. We need this. And so they took the baptism of John. But, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized of him. Like I said, John... Brings this this baptism, this message of repentance and cleansing, this need, and the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected such a humiliating confession. I am not need. I am not in need of cleansing. Do you know how well I keep myself clean? Right? Do you know how well that I fought? I don't even just follow the law of God. I've put so many laws around the law of God. I don't even get close to breaking the law of God. Is their posture? So I have prepared myself for the coming of the Messiah. I'm in a need of cleansing. And Jesus shows up on the scene, right? And this parable of rebuke gives us Jesus' response to that kind of posture where the, the, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected um, God's plan for their life. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus gives this illustration through a parable, right? So what should I compare the, this generation? Speaking like, specifically people like the Pharisees and the lawyers. What are they like? Well, they're like children, like stuck up children who it doesn't matter what kind of crafts or games that you bring to pass the time by. They don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. Right. He's like, we've played a flute for you. Right. Because in this time, what happened all the time were weddings and funerals. And so he's like, that's what children would play, weddings and funerals. So he says, you're like children who they get together and they're like, well, we played a flute, but they didn't want to dance. Well, we sang a dirge, like a funeral, but they didn't want to weep. And he says, For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, in verse 33. And you say, he has a demon, right? So he comes with asceticism, with with um, you know fasting and, and kind of laying aside all things about life to to present himself before the Lord and to be the forerunner. And you say, this man is a lunatic. He has a demon. He's weird. Then the Lord Jesus comes and he's participating in life and eating and drinking and hanging out with sinners and being friends to all people. And you're like, this guy is a drunkard and a glutton. He's like, what? look at this generation, you know? The Messiah has come on the scene, and they're rejecting any message of, that they are not righteous, right? So he's, so what really is he, is he saying here? The followers of John and Jesus, and then he finishes, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Right, so we come back to this point where he says, "Blessed is the one who's not offended by me," and then he rebukes the Pharisees and the lawyers, and says, "You're like children who just you 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 don't want anything, you don't like anything, everything's a no, you can't make up your mind." Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. He kind of leaves. He kind of drops this whole section with a banger, like if you're playing music in your car and this nice beat, it's like banging the speakers. Well, this is what this sentence does. It's like a thumper. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And he's making a point there, which we will consider. And so there we kind of have it, right? There are thoughts um, about the text. And we could, um, you know, step back and have many devotional thoughts and sweet things about what we see in this text, but I think we would miss the big idea The big idea of this section of scripture of 18 through 35, I think there are two dominant issues that we must deal with, but one flows out of the other. The first one is much longer and the second one is very short, just so you know. So the first issue is that the promised one came in the way of the cross and not glory. There's the big issue here. The promised one came in the way of the cross and not glory. The second issue is, and we'll discuss why it's an issue. The second issue is that Jesus is wisdom personified. So looking at that first issue, that pro- the promised one came in the way of the cross and not glory. You know, Jesus says in verse 23, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Why would John or anyone else be offended by Jesus? Why would the Pharisees and the lawyers reject him? Why? Well, because Jesus, the coming one, who's been prophesied from the ancient of days to be the God that will come save his people has arrived. And instead of having a noble birth as a prince, he's born in an animal stable. They may be expected a king, a strong political power, but he was a lowly servant. They expected the promised one to be an establisher of justice and to bring vengeance now, earthly now, to God's enemies. But he shows up as a a friend to corrupt government workers and drunkards. They expected glory in the light of Israel to show up, but this one was despised and rejected. The Pharisees have taken the law and the sacrificial system and they've really worked it hard so that they can prove themselves to be righteous. And then Jesus shows up and he takes the law and the sacrificial system and rips them open and shows them how filthy they are. Yes, you've, you've put so many laws and laws and laws. You've never actually cheated on your wife, but you have lust in your heart. And God hates that. Right? He just uses what they've used to make themselves righteous. And he's, he uses that as it's intended to and exposes their sin. Beloved, the promised one did come to open the eyes of the blind. And he came to open the ears of the deaf and make the paralyzed person leap like a deer and give the mute a song of joy to make the desert wasteland a source of life and of living water, to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, to heal the paralyzed, to preach to the poor. He came to be high and lifted up and exalted, as the sin-bearer. It's even mentioned from Isaiah 53 this morning. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as the one whom men hide their faces, who despised and we esteem him not. Surely he was born He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And like sheep have gone astray, we've turned, every one of us, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what offended John. This is what offended the Pharisees. Because the promised one came and he was the sin bearer. We thought it was going to be an earthly establishment. It's like there will be. Those things are true. But that's glory, right? That's That's something that's yet to be done. He has to first come as the Savior for sinners. We don't want him to first come as the judge and in the vengeance of God. He came first for sinners to have the vengeance of God poured out on Him. And so He rose from the dead after being our sin bearer. Penalty for sin is death. Death would defeat us forever, but it did not defeat our Savior. Instead, He walked out of the grave as a victorious, devil-crushing king of His people. Show me any religion where their God comes down from His glory to shed His own blood for His enemies. There's only one. His name is Jesus, and He is our Savior and our God and our hope and our peace. He's the only hope for sinners like you and like me. He has earned glory for us. Now here's the key here. He has earned glory for us, but that glory awaits us. This is the way in which the promised one came, the way of suffering, the way of the cross. So, in the Christian life, I ask you is it one of cross or is it one of glory? Is the Christian life one of the cross or is it one of glory? We fantasized, honestly, we have, what it means to be like John the Baptist when he prayed that I would decrease and that Jesus would increase. John prayed that prayer but then he's complaining when he starts to decrease. He's sitting in jail. Lord, I hope that you're magnified and that I'm not. And he's sitting in jail like, bro, are you really the one? Now, ultimately, I think that's because there has to be an end to the Old Testament. And that's what John represented. But at the same time, we pray that prayer often. I must decrease, you must increase. And we kind of fantasize what it would feel like to be a Christian who decreases. And it's like, well, we're going to feel so humble and lowly and we're just going to feel good and we're going, to, you know, we're going to be close to the Lord and all these things are going to happen. And that's not necessarily what we've been promised. For John the Baptist, it didn't mean a glorious earthly deliverance from prison or that he would feel good about his death. It meant that God was faithful to increase Jesus because John the Baptist's head was chopped off. So it is with us, brothers and sisters. We await glory. We await the day when our faith becomes sight. And then behold, in the twinkling of an eye, we will have put on imperishable bodies like Jesus's to be with him and our God, our Father, forever in a perfect world where sin and pain and tears don't exist. The thought of those things will be gone. But until we reach glory, we live in the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus over and over and over again. And over again. We are not promised glory in this life. We're not promised that if we follow the scriptures and we follow the law and we do whatever it is we think we do, that you know our finances are always gonna be stable and we're not gonna get sick, and in our jobs, we're always gonna get the promotion and we're always gonna have success. And things are always gonna get better, and we're always gonna be improving, and we're gonna be in control of our spiritual journey, and God is gonna feel close, and we're gonna be sure, and we're never gonna doubt. None of that is ever promised. We're actually promised a life of the cross, spiritually and physically. The, what do I mean by a life of the cross? Well, I mean, we have been called, brothers and sisters, we've been called into faith in Christ. We're called to die with Him. That's really happened. We are called to die with Him. And not only have we been gifted to believe in Christ, That is also a death to one's old self. We walk this earth as those who have been crucified with Christ. That is our state right now. We've crucified with Christ. Luther said it this way, and I thought it was really good. The cross is not simply the end of the journey in our quest for righteousness, not simply the destination of a happy outcome of life with God for us dead sinners. It is also the means by which the journey is made and the experience of the journey itself. Think about what your baptism signifies. Being united to Christ in his cross, dying to sin and rising unto new life in his righteousness. This is the Christian life every day. We live in the already but not yet. We have been saved. We are being saved, and we will be saved. In other words, we have been justified. We're being sanctified, and we will be glorified. But we haven't attained our final salvation yet. We're not there yet. We live in light of it, certainly. One writer that I really enjoyed reading his thoughts said it this way, Jesus has been raised from the dead and He has received His heavenly glory. He has had His Easter, but we have not. The experience of victory over sin, over death, and over the devil is history for Christ, but it's faith and it's hope for us. And I thought it was a really good way to put it. Victory over sin in this life, over death, and our hope of glory, it's faith and it's hope for us. Jesus is in heaven now as as the resurrected Messiah in that, right? In that state where all this is past. He's also here with us. As we live in the, the death and the resurrection of Christ each day where we're dying to sin and living unto righteousness, remembering as we look back to our baptism, whose we are, who we are, that I'm a new creation. I don't do those old things anymore. I'm quick to apologize. I'm quick to show mercy because I have been forgiven and mercy has been poured out on me more than I could ever count or ever deserve. But also it's good for us to consider as we're thinking about the way our Messiah came the first time in the way of the cross, so is our life. And obedience to God doesn't mean earthly blessing or deliverance from pain and suffering in this life. It also doesn't mean that you're going to have more of God's favor because you're more obedient or less obedient. Our good works and our spiritual disciplines, if you have any, are not to earn God's blessings and favor. The life in the cross of Christ understands that we are damned if we put any of our trust or confidence in anything or in addition to the righteousness of Christ that God has bestowed on us. We have all the favor, all the blessing, all the acceptance that we could ever need or that there is to have because of our faith in Christ, which is a gift from God. That is done so, And we don't trust in our obedience and we don't trust in our spiritual disciplines. We don't trust in the fruit of our good works. We trust in Christ alone for that. In our context, brothers and sisters, we all will easily admit what I just said that we can't be saved apart from Christ, that we're either spiritually dead or we're either spiritually alive. We admit that um, we're dead in Adam or we're alive in Christ. That's our only two positions. We just admitted that and said, Yes, God, let it be, that that be true. We all just did that. And we all agree that it's purely by grace, but then we begin to slip off. The, the trail, when it comes to uh, our obedience and our spiritual disciplines in God's favor and in, in blessings on our life. We must never, ever, 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 again, I'm, I'm repeating this on purpose, look to our good works or our disciplines or our participation in the church body or church attendance as ways that can even partially gain God's favor. You have it. And all of those things I just mentioned, your good works to, to seek to serve your neighbor, the spiritual disciplines of having a quiet time and reading your scriptures and and having time of silence and prayer and and meditation on maybe your life lately and in thinking about ways that you aren't aware of your sin, to to show up to church, to participate in the life of the body, to have people over at your house to eat, to, to be hospitable. All of those things are a gift from the Lord to encourage faith, to strengthen faith and to drive us as we Look to that day when glory will finally be ours. Those things are blessings and gifts of the Lord. But we do those things and we participate in those things because our salvation is complete. Right? And that encourages us to do those things. And we get to say, when I think, "Ah, oh, man, I really, I'm, you know, the Lord's probably upset because I haven't had anybody in my house anymore. No, that is foolish. That's baloney. That is, that is not true, and we fight those kind of thoughts, and so we say, no, 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 I am good in the Lord Jesus. I am righteous, and I am holy, and nothing's changing that. So let me dig a little deep, although I'm tired, and the house is a mess, and I'm going to have to clean it up and invite people over to, to have some fellowship, right? I do all of those things, and we, we do all of these things, whether it's obedience and good works, because we know that we're good, and because glory is ahead of us, and we can spend our lives in the death of Christ, and living unto his righteousness, dying to ourselves, right? Dying to those thoughts and to those old ways and saying, no, I'm going to push towards obedience. I'm going to push towards serving my brothers and sisters because glory awaits me and us. Glory awaits us. So we can remember that, right, in the way of the cross. Because... In this fallen world, it's not our neighbors who need, or it's, it's our neighbors who need our love, right? We need each other's mercy and grace and forgiveness. Not God. We say this a lot. It's God who gets the glory when we spend our lives for our neighbor's good, though. He's going to see to it. But God no longer needs anything from you. He provided everything he needed from you and his son, Jesus. That's what faith is for. Martin Luther says, faith is for God. Works are for neighbor. And I just thought it's a good short way to remember. Yes, everything that God needs for me, he provided. And it's in the cross of Christ where I've been crucified and I've been made new that I remember who I am. I'm no longer the old self. I don't do those ways. I'm not going to succumb to the way that I used to think. I'm going to fight those things because I'm dead in Christ and now I have a new way of living. I'm going to remember that. That's what happens when we look back to our baptism. Not only is it that God has us in times of doubt and and depression and anxiety, but it's also a reminder, like putting on a wedding ring, who's I am and what I do. I love my neighbors, and I'm quick to apologize when I offend them. Things like that. Jesus has brought a completion to the old covenant, and we're no longer in need of sacrifices offered for cleansing. He did all that. Now, instead... We offer sacrifices of thanksgiving as his adopted children. Because we have been saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for me personally, what does that look like? Well, almost every single day it looks like this. I remember my baptism. What I mean by that is I remember that God has claimed me as his own. And I try not to be a jerk to my wife. Primarily, that's what every day I try to do because it's natural for me to think about me and not about her, right? Or not about you guys. and worry about praying for you and thinking of you. It's not natural to me, but I wake up, I remember my baptism, and I try, right? We try to remember that we're dead in Christ, and we're, we live new life in him unto his righteousness, and so we think about each other. Again, not because anything about God is going to change. These are Sacrifices of thanksgiving because glory awaits us. So every day is dying to self in Christ and serving others through our vocations. This is what the Christian life is because the promised one came in the way of the cross, not glory. But glory is coming. Glory is coming. And number two, right? We looked at the promised one. What offended them was that he came in the way of the cross, not in the way of glory. And number two, Jesus hits this thumper when he says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And one of the coolest things I think that, well, that was a weird way to describe this. Going through Proverbs this summer, whenever we did, was really good because I've never heard Jesus preach from Proverbs, and I've never been encouraged to obey the Lord Jesus from a way of like, you know, that Jesus has done it all. And so Proverbs was just like life-giving when normally it's like, good grief, you know, like I I don't know what to do because every single verse is something else that I'm supposed to be doing and I I can't keep up with all this, you know. So that was sweet. And we learned in that series that Jesus is wisdom personified. Jesus, like in Proverbs, what does it mean that he's wisdom personified? Well, we looked at wisdom as being what? Well, it's wisdom is recognizing how holy God is and how holy we are not and that we need a Savior. And Jesus shows up on the scene as wisdom personified, right? As not only righteousness, but as our Savior, as our substitute, as the mediator between God and man. And so all who follow John and Jesus, excuse me, so... Um, Recognizing how holy God is and our need for repentance and cleansing, we see this in the followers of John and Jesus. But those who denied the baptism of John are denying the wisdom of God. They're denying Jesus, the message that He brings, that you need me. right? They're denying that message. And we know that not all of Israel was Israel. But especially here, even the people who taught the Scriptures and the oracles of God They were denying the way of God, the wisdom of God, because repentance and cleansing are needed. And that is what Jesus's ministry is providing. Repentance and cleansing. And the people of God are perfect examples of wisdom. He says wisdom is justified by all her children. And I'm making the argument that what he's saying is that the people who are of God, are perfect examples of wisdom. Well, how's that? i finishing up here. Well, to think about false wisdom. False wisdom, as seen in the Pharisees and the lawyers, is recognizing humans to be the standard of righteousness. Right? They thought they were doing a good job. They, they used the system and other people's to basically say, we're doing pretty good. We're clean. We're, we're good. They seem perfect, honestly, from the out, outwardly. They seem perfect. But true wisdom is recognizing the real measure of righteousness, which isn't other people or, what, or how we interpret the law. It's the holiness of God. True wisdom is recognizing the, the true measure of righteousness is the holiness of God. And so wisdom is recognizing God's grace in Christ. The children in the church, we exemplify this when we confess that He is the one we need. This is wisdom, knowing our need of Christ. And like we said a second ago, we're either one or two things. We're either dead in Adam or we're alive in Christ, the promised one. Our God has come to save us, Isaiah 35. The promised one accomplished the work that was promised of Him. And He's coming back soon as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is then that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And those who are wicked will get their just reward from God. And those who are in Christ will get their reward for righteousness. Praise be to God for His Word and for Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you for for the promised one who came. Father, he has defeated all of our sin. He has defeated Satan and the last enemy, death. And as we await glory, Father, we're thankful that you are never going to let us down. You're never going to let us go. You're never going to leave us. You'll never forsake us no matter if persecution comes, no matter if we lose our jobs or uh, what kind of failures happen in this life or what kind of sin that we struggle with mightily. You promise that you will never leave us or forsake us as your children. And we thank you for that, Father. And we pray that you would help us to trust you as we live a life in the cross Daily dying to self and remembering who we are in him. We're holy, we're righteous, we're perfect. Father, help us to love one another. Help us to deny ourselves and our selfishness to love one another. And help us to love you. Do this in Jesus' name. Amen.